The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company that operates internationally from bases in the UK and the US. Smarter Grid Solutions DERMS products, that's distributed energy resource management systems, are used by distribution utilities, energy service companies, and microgrid operators to manage grid capacity and resilience and to seamlessly integrate energy assets onto the grid and in the market. Its software already manages over 400 megawatts of distributed energy around the world, and it's saved customers over $300 million in grid upgrades. To find out more about how Smarter Grid Solutions software can integrate renewable and distributed energy into the grid and give you real control over your clean energy assets, visit info.smartergridsolutions.com interchange. And if that's a little too long for you, just click the link in the show notes. So 24-7 carbon-free energy is not meant to bring more complexity to this problem. It's actually meant to bring more sanity to this problem. What we've seen is, and, and, I, and I often joke that, uh, you know, we've helped to create a monster uh, with, with 100% renewable energy commitments. 100% is not really 100%. Google is trying to change that. This is The Interchange. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So in 2017, Google became the first major company to reach 100% renewable energy through corporate renewables procurement. But they were also the first major company to acknowledge that 100% is not really 100%. What they had actually achieved is having procured 100% of their total electricity demand on an annual basis from a combination of wind, solar, and hydropower for which they had procured, but just on an annual basis. So they then set out to go further and to reach what the real promised land of 100% is, which is to match their procurement on an hourly basis. That is the dream of 24-7 zero-carbon energy. I've been really excited to talk to Google about this new target that they've set for two reasons. The first is that, as they acknowledge, it is going to be hard. To give you a sense of the magnitude of that challenge, they set this new goal of reaching 24-7 clean energy across all of their global operations um, by 2030. So they're saying it'll take basically a decade for them to get there, even despite the fact that they are already at 100% on an annualized basis. In addition, just to give you a sense of how far they have to go, In 2019, Google was at 100% on an annualized basis, but only at 61% on an hourly basis. 61% of the hourly energy that Google consumes globally across its data centers came from carbon-free sources. It's also very regional, whereas in Oklahoma, where the wind literally goes sweeping down the plain, they were at 96%. 96% of hours where they procured energy came from clean sources. But in Singapore, it was only 3%. So it's going to be a challenge for them to get from 61% as of last year to 100% by the end of this decade. Second, I think Google going through this transformation represents sort of a microcosm of the entire world because full electricity grids and utilities and nations are also attempting to reach 24-7 
zero carbon. Generally speaking, on somewhat longer time horizons than Google has in mind, but with a similar path, nonetheless. We've actually just seen it most recently in uh, President Biden's infrastructure plan, which buried in there, something that I think didn't get quite enough coverage, was a goal for the federal government in the U.S. to procure 24-7 clean power for all federal buildings, which is a fairly large source of energy demand. So this transition will have ramifications for all sorts of things, new technologies, for market structures, for data requirements. There's a lot embedded within it. And I hadn't seen all of that unpacked apart from just the high-level proclamations around getting to 24-7. So as we do on the interchange, it was time to dig in. And I had a great conversation about how to actually get to that promised land with Michael Terrell, the director of energy at Google, who's responsible for this 24-7 clean energy mandate. So 24-7 is the new hotness. Here's my conversation with Michael. So I hear through the grapevine that you uh, have a multi-generational background that has to do with coal. Is that true? Yeah, I like to describe it as an energy background. Uh Uh, It's like my name is Shale. And (laughs) yes, that is an energy-related name. But uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like to say that my family's in the energy business, but uh, yeah, my uh, my grandfather, my father, my uncle um, ran a coal mining company in Alabama where I was born and raised that that stripped mine coal. Now the, this company went defunct a long time ago. Although I still have members of my family who are in the coal business, um, so we haven't completely divorced ourselves from it. And so yes, I get a lot of. Um, of strong reaction sometimes on Facebook when I post whatever our latest clean energy announcement is, and and I've got the other side of the family that's that's boo and and, and reacting in the opposite fashion. So it, it keeps things interesting. That's amazing. And so here you are now at Google trying to implement this very ambitious strategy to get to twenty four seven zero carbon power across all of Google's operations by twenty thirty. And I think what we're going to do here, which I'm very excited about for for the next hour or so, is dig in deep on what that actually means and what it entails and what it's going to take to get there. So let's start by um, talking about the lay of the land with regard to Google's energy usage. What is the actual electricity load profile of Google look like today? What is its shape? What is it comprised of? So we use about uh, 12.2 terawatt hours in 2019 of electricity. And as an order of magnitude, that's roughly twice the electricity consumption of San Francisco. Um, we've got facilities all around the world, you know, data centers and, uh, you know, just about every continent. Uh, these are very large facilities. Uh, I call them the the manufacturing centers of the internet. Uh, they have, they generally have pretty flat loads, high low factor um, you know, but they're very large, uh, you know, industrial loads that are that are in a very wide variety of markets um, and circumstances around the world. And let's talk about the data centers. So pres- presumably most of that load is data centers. You have you have electricity demand at offices and so on, but the data centers are the big chunk of it. You imagine, or at least I imagine, the electricity consumption profile of a representative data center being pretty flat. Like it's operating basically 24-7, or at least you want it to be from Google's perspective. Is that true? That's right. Yeah, they're 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 pretty flat loads, and and I should say, in you flagged it, we have out with offices, um, you know, all around the world as as well. But 
the you know the vast majority of our electricity consumption is associated with our data centers. Right. Okay. And so it's basically pretty flat load. So for the most part, when you talk about achieving twenty four seven clean energy, you really mean twenty four seven, which I think is actually uh, an important distinction because what the generally what twenty four seven clean energy means is like energy matched to the load profile in any given hour, which you do mean too. It's just your load profile happens to be 24-7 consumption, which is not true of everybody. That's right. Yes, 24-7 is, you know, every hour, and in our view, every hour of every day at every location. Um, Although we do have um, a little bit of an ability to to move loads around, and, and I'll I'll give you an example. We've you know last year we started um, shifting loads temporarily, so over the course of a twenty four hour period, to align with the times of the day that the grids are the cleanest. We actually got a day ahead forecast of what we felt like the carbon intensity of a grid is going to be, and started shifting compute loads around that in that way. But we tend to run the data centers as efficiently as possible. And and because of that, the loads tend to be pretty flat. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk just for another minute about that ability to modulate your load according to the the carbon intensity of the grid. How far can you take that, do you think? Like, how, how big a difference can that make? If you were to do it in every data center, um, how much of the problem can you solve just by changing your load profile? Yeah, that's something that we're, we're trying to answer now. We've started shifting loads over time. Um, but we also want to start shifting loads spatially, so shift loads from location to location. And that is probably much more promising, we think, than shifting over time since our loads tend to be pretty flat. The other thing that we're seeing, too, with that is that the the carbon mix, the carbon intensity of the grids where we operate is not as spiky as I would have thought it to be. It's It's pretty consistent. It does vary quite a bit over uh, seasons and uh, but but generally during a 24-hour period it's not like you're seeing these huge swings in the carbon intensity of the grids where we operate it's a it's a little more it's flatter than you think Um, and so again I think that uh, you know the big opportunity for us is going to be looking at spatial shifting versus temporal shifting and so spatial shifting just to be clear would be you take a given workload and you you do that workload in one data center in one location instead of a different data center in a different location because that first data center has a lower carbon emissions profile in real time on the grid. That's basically the idea. That's right. There's certain compute jobs that don't have to be done uh, in, in real time. They can be they can be time delayed, and so you take those jobs and you know you shift them into another location. Right. Okay. So you can. You know, you could do a little bit, I guess, around the edges with regard to where the load comes from and what time it is used. But at the end of the day, it also means you're just going to need to procure a lot of zero carbon power. So I think we'll dedicate most of this conversation to how you're going to do that. Let's start by talking about the the data challenge that you have in even figuring out how to do this. As, as you've gone through this journey and set up this initiative, what are the areas where you discovered, oh, wait a minute, we need data that we don't currently have in order to even pull this off? Yeah, there's really, you know, I would say two buckets of of data that we've needed. The, the first is the data that we need to operate 
24-7 carbon-free. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. And then second, you know, the data that we need to ensure that we're tracking and crediting, you know, what we're using. So on the first one, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, very basic data sets around the real-time consumption of uh, electricity from our data centers, um, the grid carbon-free energy, you know, also preferably <laughs> available in real-time. And then lastly, whatever we're doing on top of that. So the real-time production data from our renewable energy projects. And, you know, that was something that I was actually surprised to find is that we actually didn't have that data. I mean, we had all of these renewable PPA projects around the world, and we didn't have, uh, you know, really good real-time production data from those projects. And the way that we surfaced that was we were working with the DeepMind team. The DeepMind team is in Alphabet is the, the machine learning experts on could we use machine learning to optimize some of the winds in our wind fleet. And, and we found that we didn't have the production data from the wind farms. And we had to actually go, to, go back to the, to the operators and find ways to get that data. And we were able to do that. So now we have a pretty good uh, you know, data sets that we can use to manage our fleet. So we have the, the real-time electricity consumption data. We've now, we're now getting pretty close to real-time grid data in most places. And um, we're also getting the, the, the data from our projects, although we're still working to fill some of these gaps. Um, but, but ultimately, you really want to have all of those things to be able to manage your fleet on a 24-7 basis. So in addition to real-time grid emissions intensity data, you presumably also need to have a good forecast of future grid emissions intensity in order to do things like change load patterns or you know move compute loads to other data centers. So did you also discover that you needed to be able to forecast emissions intensity on the grid and how hard a challenge is that? We did. Yeah, to to do any of the the more interesting things on top of the the sort of daily management, you you've got to have these other data sets. So you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, to shift the compute a load around, uh, we want to have a day ahead forecast of what we think the carbon intensity of the grid is, and so that's data that we now get for our sites. And then to you know use machine learning to optimize our our wind fleet, you know you've got there's a lot of data sets that you need to really manage that well. You know you've got to have um, you know production data from the wind farms, but also forecasted production data. You've got to have weather data, which also helps feed into understanding what production could be. And then of course you've got to have the RTO market data, you know forecasts and LMPs and other data sets like that. So. Um, so it, it adds it adds up um, as you start to add on these other pieces. And then all of that together represents the sort of operational data side of things. But then you also alluded to the other piece, which is the crediting side of things. How do you make sure that you are accounting for after the fact that whatever energy you actually consumed, where did it come from and how much emissions was embedded within it? So what's that side of the coin look like? Yeah, this was another area where when we decided to start making the shift to 24-7 carbon-free energy, we found that the 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 REC tracking systems don't actually account for this. You know, none of them did anywhere in the world. And, uh, and so that was a bit of a surprise. And, you know, because at the end of the day, like a lot of these uh, corporate purchasing efforts are voluntary and you want to be able to track and account for, you know, each megawatt of carbon-free 
free energy that you're using. And, you know, typically you retire these wrecks, um, you know, in, in these cases. And so, um, you know, we started um, having conversations with, um, you know, the, the tracking systems uh, about, you know, how can we actually have a more granular approach to this? And, uh, and then just last month, we, we announced uh, pilots, you know, one in the U.S. and one in Europe to actually uh, start tracking, uh, you know, carbon-free energy on an hourly and locational basis. And, um, you know, and so that's something that we're hoping we'll see spread to um, other tracking systems as well. But, but yeah, we really were, were starting from zero there. That really feels like, to me, th- almost inevitably has to be the future of Rex. Like a, a, so a REC is a renewable energy credit and a renewable energy credit as it exists today is just, the, it represents one megawatt hour and that's all you know about it, right? Maybe you know it's one megawatt hour from this wind farm in Texas, but ultimately it has to ultimately become, this is one megawatt hour that was produced at this time in this location. And then ideally, you know, with here's the emissions intent, here's what it displaced basically, Here's, here's what else would have been produced. It was the marginal um, megawatt hour on a grid that was comprised of X, Y, and Z. Exactly. You know, we were starting to see with our own fleet that we had, uh, you know, data centers that were in grids where there was a high penetration of carbon-free energy and we had also contracted on top of that. And it's like, look, do we really want to go do another project in the Nordics, you know, where we're already in pretty high uh, CFE, carbon-free energy, or do we want to go to another um, location where we could get more bang for the buck? And, you know, you want the tracking systems to be able to recognize that. And, you know, as we get more and more grids that start to have a higher penetration of renewables, you really want to be thinking about, you know, how can you have the highest impact for your procurement? And so, you know, to your point, this is absolutely something that'll be necessary. And it's honestly not that difficult for the tracking systems to, to layer on these elements. And, uh, and you know, we're seeing a lot of um, enthusiasm from, from the systems to do this. Sure. I mean, I can see it would represent it's a whole new vanguard for them. I could see why they would be into it. All right. So let's get to the, I think, the meat of the challenge here, right? This, everything we've talked about so far is what data do you need to then solve the problem that we are about to discuss, which is what resources does it take in order for you to be able to 24-7, 365, match your clean energy procurement with your load? So obviously, historically, Google has signed more PPAs than any other corporate in the world, predominantly for wind and solar. So how, you know, in doing this analysis around getting to 24-7, how close or far are you from 24-7 if you just kept signing more and more PPAs for combinations of wind and solar? Yeah. I, I mean, one reason why we felt comfortable making this commitment to achieve 24-7 by 2030 was that, you know, we really felt like we had made really good progress on our, our on our portfolio through our just, you know, 100% renewable energy annual transactions. And uh, and we felt that it was doable, you know, and we, we've, you know, modeled it out and uh, we, we don't know exactly the path, but we have a f- feel for what the path looks like. Um, but, you know, it, one thing we're seeing is that, you know, it, it, 
It varies greatly um, based on region and the availability of resources. In some places, you can get pretty far, and others not so much. Um, and then, you know, you you can get pretty far with um, you know existing technology that's been scaled, so wind, solar, and storage. Um, but you know, we've found in our own modeling, you know, which is very similar to uh, some of the more sophisticated energy system models, that you know, wind and solar and storage can get you a, a big chunk of the way there you know, 70, 80%, maybe higher. Um, but it, the, you'll need a more diverse portfolio to really take it further than that. And you'll also need to get smarter about how you manage demand. So we're certainly thinking now much more holistically about how we're approaching this problem from a technology standpoint than we were before. Before we were just, you know, going out and buying wind and solar in bulk and, uh, you know, tallying that up and, and making sure at the end of the year we had bought a, enough to match 100% of our consumption. Now we're having to look at a much more diversified approach where we mix and match resources and actually look at new resources to be able to um, to pull this off. It strikes me, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me like the the areas in which a given portfolio of wind, solar, and lithium ion falls short gets you to 70 or 80%, like you said, but they, that remaining 20, 30%, those are exactly the types of situations where you're probably not going to be able to solve the problem with load shifting because those are the types of situations where like you have a multi-day weather event, right? You have no wind for a week at a time or you know a cloudy week or whatever it might be and you're reliant on a bunch of solar and your lithium ion batteries don't have long enough duration. Presumably over those kinds of, kinds of time scales, it's going to be tough to shift workloads to another data center. So you kind of need new resources at that point. I, I think that's right. I, I think it it depends on, again, sort of where you're located. I do think that there are certain grids where you can get to a really high penetration with, with those technologies that we discussed. The other thing to think about too is like, can we redesign the grids? You know, I mean, the, the more regional a grid, the more you can manage the variability and like, why don't we have these big regional grids everywhere in the US and elsewhere, you know, because they're, they're absolutely essential to being able to balance all of these resources over larger uh, land, you know, land area. They also, you know, contribute to uh, cost savings and have a huge efficiencies associated with them. So, so it's not only thinking about the tech, the generation technology, let's think about how we design the grids themselves and let's read, let's, let's redraw the boundaries. Um, and then I think there's other markets like uh, we have a data center in Singapore yeah, that's a really challenging from a from a land perspective, and you know that might be one where you might you might need to find some technologies that leapfrog you know traditional wind and solar and storage um, to get you to those sort of higher penetrations. So it's a really interesting problem, and it really um, depends on sort of where you are and what what's available to you. You mentioned the grid interconnection thing. How, how do you think about that in terms of proximity? How important is it to you that the generation that you are procuring for a data center is uh, in near proximity to that data center? Do you just care whether the grid is interconnected or do you have any reason for it to be local generation? How do you how do you account for that? No, I mean, their data centers are such large, lo such large loads that, you know, you really do need very large projects to serve them. So um, from that perspective, it's not as important that they be on site. Now, that said, it doesn't mean uh, you can't do that. And we, there's there's others who have. But from our perspective, 
you know, regional grids, cite the resources where it makes the most sense from a cost and, and location perspective and deliver those across the wi- deliver the power across the, the wires to your facility and to everyone in the, in the regional grid. The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company that specializes in distributed energy resource management systems. Operating from New York and Glasgow, its Durham solutions are used by every distribution utility in the UK and several utilities and energy companies in the US. Internationally, Smarter Grid Solutions manages over 400 megawatts of operational clean energy assets. Cirrus Flex, Smarter Grid Solutions' virtual power plant product, optimizes the operating schedules of distributed energy resources, maximizing returns from energy markets and grid flexibility services. Cirrus Flex pulls together mixed distributed energy assets and fleets to the grid and market, delivering on-site and system value to asset owners, operators, aggregators, and traders. To learn more about Smarter Grid Solutions and the value-maximizing virtual power plant solutions offered by Cirrus Flex, visit info.smartergridsolutions.com interchange, or just check out the link in the show notes. All right, so let's talk about the, the new resources that you might need when solar and wind and lithium-ion batteries and grid interconnection and load shifting, when those things together hit a ceiling, what are what are the types of things that you're thinking about to bridge the rest of the gap? Yeah, well, you know, I think certainly long duration storage is one that's, you know, particularly interesting. And, you know, you've seen some recent studies that really, um, you know, point to the advantage of that kind of uh, technology. Um, you know, we're looking at a lot of different areas right now, but, you know, it's it's the ones that typically come to mind. So, you know, whether it's hydro or geothermal or advanced nuclear or CCS, you know, um, one thing for us is we have a 2030 goal. So, you know, we are looking for opportunities that can be commercialized at scale within that time frame. And that does, you know, maybe lead lead us away from some of the sort of further things that might be further out. So we are looking for, you know, technologies that we can, uh, you know, uh, deploy at scale in time to meet that 2030 goal. And then from a operational perspective, you know, what you're going to be doing and what you're already doing, I guess, is starting to construct these portfolios. Um, of a mix of resources, you know, some of those things that you just mentioned, plus the more traditional resources like wind and solar and, and lithium ion. How does that actually work inside Google? Like, do you go load by load and say, okay, well, now we got to solve a problem for this data center in this location. Let's issue an open RFP or let's like, you know, solicit bids for various resources in one way or another, and then see if we can cobble together a portfolio that matches our load? Or what's the What's the process like? You, you know, it's 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 not far from that. I mean, it's 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 pretty simple when you think about it um, from that perspective. But that that is what you're trying to do. You're you're looking at a facility by facility, and how do we, um, you know, develop a portfolio of carbon free resources to serve that facility? So, you know, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, we have a data center, a newer data data center in Nevada, and we worked with um, our utility there, NV Energy. To procure power from uh, to a very large 
new solar and storage resource. And so we even, you know, found a way to split the benefits of the battery so that the utility can use the battery and use that storage when it's most valuable to them, you know, during the summer peaking hours, and they can dispatch it onto their system and for their system needs. But we get dedicated to us for the rest of the hours of the year and paired up with storage, I mean, paired up with solar, that gets us, you know, very high penetrations of CFE. So that's a a relatively new project. It's close to being, uh, it's still under review, but um, we're very optimistic it'll get approved. Uh, another example uh, is in Chile, we worked with AES to mix and match wind and solar. Uh, we have a data center down there. We already had a solar project. Uh, we went back to AES and 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 looked at how we could mix and match wind and solar, additional wind and solar to get that facility to a higher um, carbon-free energy percentage. So the so those are a couple of examples of I would say early examples of how we're thinking about um, transacting. I think there's a lot more a uh, lot more things we could do and a lot of different ways we can transact to help meet these uh, these sort of 24/7 requirements. Um, you know, one thing we're looking at is how can we create you know, a contracting and supply structure that allows buyers to achieve a high level of carbon-free energy without having to, you know, uh, sign PPAs for individual, um, you know, projects and, and and avoids the complexity of having a contract for multiple multiple large-scale PPAs. So that's a, that's another model that we're looking at. And I think there's a, no, a number of others. And, and, you know, we're really just getting started um, in this in this journey to get to 24-7. And so I think the sort of natural starting place is, okay, well, instead of just signing a wind contract or a wind and solar, let's blend these and fill in more hours. Um, and then now we're sort of looking at, okay, well, how can you get smarter about how you contract for this and and who you partner with? And then I think we'll also start to look at, um, okay, what are some new technologies that we want to look at as well beyond just wind and solar and storage? And so, um, you know, I think there's a, a lot of really interesting stuff to come. I'm very optimistic based on the conversations and the projects we're looking at now and, um, you know, really excited about some of the things that we'll be rolling out this year and beyond. Anybody who's been deep in the world of corporate renewables procurement knows that the contractual mechanisms and the, the pricing mechanisms can get pretty complicated pretty fast because you're signing these synthetic agreements for power. And so, the, but the project is actually going to sell power into the wholesale market. And so then there's all these issues with like basis risk between the node and the hub where the project is selling power and all this kind of stuff. And it strikes me that there's a risk that you're just adding an additional layer of complexity to that, which is now, you know, we ascribe differential value to a kilowatt hour that is produced at a time when we actually have load versus one that is not. So this, I guess, gets to your point that you were making about trying to create uh, contracting mechanisms that are not overly complicated. But I, I guess I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you can do that. You know, like, are you going to sign a PPA for a wind project in this new context where there is differential pricing ascribed to differential times to different times of production, you know, like a time of use tariff kind of a thing? Or do you just deal with that all abstracted away for the projects by saying, look, on the back end, we're going to figure out how to reconcile all the different resources we need? So 24-7 carbon-free energy is not meant to bring more complexity to this problem. 
it's actually meant to bring more sanity to this problem because what we've seen is and and I and I often joke that uh, you know we've helped to create a monster uh, with with 100% renewable energy commitments is that um, I think in the early days uh, it, it's you know it, it led to a lot of positive results and and you know deployment of renewable energy in places um, where it hadn't been at scale and now we have a very large corporate procurement market. But it's also, um, you know, skewed in a direction in certain markets and in a growing number of markets that don't necessarily align with the way the markets should evolve. You know, I think a good example here would be, uh, you know, negative pricing that we see from oversaturation of wind in places like SPP um, or, you know, addition of projects uh, in grids where there's already high penetration of renewables. And, you know, we really felt like we wanted to align our purchasing more with where the direction the grids should go. Um, because at the end of the day, that's that's what we're ultimately trying to accomplish is to get the grids to 24-7 carbon-free energy. And so, um, you know, the vision here is not to uh, have thousands and thousands and thousands of companies transacting for 24-7 carbon-free energy. The, the goal here is to get the grids to carbon-free as fast as possible. And that's the quickest way to bring to the masses uh, carbon-free energy. And so we're certainly hoping to lead the way to that. And we think that we're closer to that than ever before. I do want to come back to that, how to bring this to the masses, because I think that's been one of, that will have been one of Google's enduring legacies in the first generation of of this trend um, of sort of pioneering, being one of the few pioneers of corporate renewable procurement, which now we do have hundreds of companies that are doing that. Maybe not quite the masses yet, but it's it's expanded a lot. So I want to pick your brain a little bit of how you think this is going to happen for 24-7. But but first, let's, let's talk about who else in the ecosystem you need to work with to get this done. I mean, you just described two examples, one in Nevada with NV Energy. So in that case, that's a partnership with a utility who's providing you the power. And then you gave another example in Chile with AES, who's an independent power producer. They presumably will own and operate the wind and solar projects. You earlier talked about the partnership, I think, with MRETS, which is the um, Midwest Renewable Energy Tracking System. So that's who you need to like tell you what time a rec was produced. Like, What's the ecosystem that you need to be building here? It, it's 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 just about everybody in the energy space, you know, if you want to do this right. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's certainly the ones you mentioned. Uh, certainly, energy suppliers, you know, in in um, deregulated markets, uh, you know, technology providers, especially when we start to think about um, how we manage demand. Um, data platforms, data providers, um, and uh, you know certainly new generation com- you know companies that are looking at new forms of generation. So I would say all, all of those uh, that that entire ecosystem of players and the sort of energy um, generation and demand space is is fair game, and uh, and we're having a lot of a uh, lot of fruitful conversations. Um, and uh, yeah, we, no, you know we're not turning away many people right now because um, you know we really want to be looking at um, you know every potential solution to help us get to this goal. What about policy? Obviously, policy plays a significant role ultimately in the economics around these resources. You know, we've had a lot of the demand for renewables historically has been driven by things like renewable portfolio standards. You're introducing kind of a whole new element here, which is in some ways consistent with there's a lot of states, for example, in the US that are now setting 100% carbon-free 
energy targets, uh, as are a bunch of utilities voluntarily, but they're doing so generally speaking on a longer time horizon than you're proposing, right? We have a lot of zero carbon or net zero carbon by 2050 or 2045 goals. And then here you are saying we need the same thing by 2030. Does that mean that you're uh, going to engage around the policy side of this as well? Or are you just going to say, look, we'll, we'll do it for us. Um, and hopefully the rest of the grid will follow as quickly as possible. Yeah, we've been engaged on policy since the early days of our renewable energy purchasing. I mean, we um, we helped create one of the very first green tariff programs with Duke Energy in North Carolina back in 2013. Uh, we did the same thing with Georgia Power in, uh, in Georgia with other um, partners. We helped open up the market in places like Taiwan. We've been very focused on policy in the European Union and certainly at the federal level. Um, so it's always been something that's important. Um, I, I think uh, another motivator uh, for us to to take on the twenty four seven target was, you know, finding a way and a path to get uh, corporate players more bought in to um, to policy and and to have more of a stake in it. And and let me let me tell you why because. With 100% renewable energy commitments or net zero commitments, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, the companies can go out and achieve those on their own. They can go buy unbundled recs, or they can go do virtual PPAs, or they can uh, do offset programs or those sorts of things. If the goals shift to 24-7, you know, then getting the grid mix up uh, becomes a big part of how you're going to accomplish that. Because... We don't expect to go do 24-7 on our own. We expect the grids where we're operating to get cleaner. And uh, and so it it creates a, a, a stake for companies to have in improving the the grids where they're operating. And so um, and, that, and we want that. <laughs> you know, you want you want companies to be champions for, um, you know, carbon free energy policies and for clean energy standards and, and other um, and other policy mechanisms that can get us there faster. And, you know, um, yes, we're starting to see states and utilities setting, you know, 2050 goals or 2045 goals. Well, we're starting to think that those goals should be 2030, you know, or 2035. And, you know, the more the more players that have a stake in getting that getting the grids to carbon free as fast as possible, the better. And um, and so, you know, that's certainly a motivator for us to set the 24 seven target to, to encourage others to do the same, because we know that we can't. Um, you know, we can do this on our own, but that doesn't really make sense for everyone else. We need to we need to sort of be bringing the grids to carbon free as fast as we can. And so, you know, for that policy is a huge driver. And, you know, it's um, it's something that's incredibly important, again, whether it's setting the overall goals and targets and standards, whether it's helping to um, address the cost of deployment of new technologies, um, whether it's uh, using the procurement power of the government. You may have just seen that the federal government, you know, just, uh, you know, indicated that they're going to try to do 24-7 purchasing and meeting the their uh, power buying goals. And that's the largest, you know, electricity purchaser in the world, I believe. So um, policy certainly plays a huge role. And again, like we all need to have a stake in getting the grids to carbon free as fast as possible. And 24-7 um, is certainly a roadmap for that. I mean, we respect that people are at different places uh, on their sort of decarbonization journeys per se, but we want to make sure that it's oriented in the right direction and that we can get there sooner than we thought. 
So we haven't talked about cost at all. And I think this is uh, obviously an important part of the equation. Maybe I'll, I'll start by just asking a very straightforward question. Do you anticipate that you will need to pay a premium in order to achieve 24-7 clean energy by 2030? And if so, how do you think about what level of a premium is is worth it? Yeah, I, I would say that we're certainly thinking about uh, costs and we're certainly uh, prepare, prepared to do this in a way that makes business sense, just like we did with renewables, um, with re- renewable energy purchasing. And, you know, that, you know, that means that we recognize that, you know, early stage projects can come with a premium, but, you know, ultimately we want to do this in a way that others can follow. So it, it doesn't help, uh, the markets or help, uh, these technologies get to scale if we are so far out in front in paying so much for these technologies that n- there's no one who can follow in our footsteps. So we want to be leading the market. We want to be driving the market. We want to be accelerating the market, but we also want to be doing it in a way that others can follow behind, um, or with us. And that's certainly what happened with corporate renewable energy purchasing. And we're expecting the same thing is going to happen with 24-7 and that the state of technology um, is is at a place where that can happen. And are there ways that you can mitigate the premium to yourself? I mean, what has Google done maybe in the in the initial iteration, getting to 100% renewables to ensure that you're doing so in a manner that is consistent with good business? Well, we inked our first wind projects in Iowa and Oklahoma. <laughs> you know, we weren't going and trying to do wind projects in Georgia. You know, like, I mean, we we were looking at where the resource was more cost effective. And we started in the places where it was, which was mainly the U.S. Midwest and the Nordics. And we sort of spread out from there. And now we've done over 50 renewable projects around the world. Um, I I remember as recently as eight or nine years ago, thinking that uh, doing utility scale solar projects in Georgia or the Carolinas was, and doing it at a, at a cost that was cheaper than what we could procure on the grid was unthinkable, you know, and, and look, I, I think folks sometimes forget that. I mean, look how far we've come in such a short amount of time. So it's not, uh, it's, it's not hard to fast forward, you know, seven or eight or nine years and see and, and envision us doing similar kinds of structures that are more balanced for 24-7 in a lot of places. And so, um, yeah, so I think there's a way that you sequence the the um, the, the the deals. You do the deals in the places where it's most cost-effective first. In the expensive markets, maybe you do smaller deals. Um, and so that's certainly um, an approach that we're thinking about as we are um, looking out across our portfolio. We're not going to go uh, you know, diving headfirst into the most expensive markets and doing gigantic deals. We're going to let, we're going to try to lead those markets to a better place where this is uh, more cost effective relative to what the alternatives are. How many people do you have working on this problem at any given time at Google? That's a great question. And I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> you know, the the thing I love about Google is, uh, you know, you've got people all across Alphabet uh, who ha- can contribute in some form or fashion. So we certainly have a, an energy team within the data center group, um, but we have incredible people at X. We have incredible people at Nest, uh, folks that we've worked with at DeepMind, folks uh, within the Google Cloud team. And so, you know, uh, there's a lot of interest across the company in, in really helping to solve these problems. And so, um, you know, many, many, many people have um, been involved in helping us get to where we are. And, 
you know, hopefully taking us to where we're going. And that's just within the company. And there's certainly many, many more outside the company that we work with. That I, I guess alludes to my last question then, which is, so Google is obviously well-equipped to take on this challenge, but as we've described, there's a lot to be done ranging from all the data that you needed to get access to, to integrating all that data, to then figuring out these procurement mechanisms, to issuing these RFPs or however you're going to go about contracting and figuring out how to do that in a manner that is efficient and, and, you know, good accounting practice and all that kind of stuff. Um, we've seen this play out to some degree in the sort of offsite corporate renewables procurement world where Google was sort of tip of the spear. And then it took some number of years and a bunch of other large energy consumers were started doing the same thing that also had a lot of resources internally. And then we've started to see it get a little bit more democratized to smaller, smaller corporates. Um, this is just a whole other level of complexity. Do, do you have ideas for how the idea of 24-7 clean energy can more quickly go from something that Google alone basically is taking on in the corporate world to something that, you know, every mom and pop company can do? Yeah. Uh, and I think it's possible and I think it's going to happen. And, uh, you know, you're seeing, um, we've seen an enormous amount of interest um, in this. And and the reason is because it's it's truly solving the problem, you know, that we're trying to solve. It's not a middle step. It's not a early step. You know, like we, we like to say that, you know, we started with carbon offsets in 2007, then we moved to an annual 100% matching. This is the last step in the decarbonization journey. And that's incredibly exciting. You know, I never dreamed we would be at this place as soon as we are, but we're here. Um, but also I think it, we need to become more comfortable recognizing that we still have quite a ways to go and it's okay uh, for for companies or organizations not to be a hundred percent I think there's a there's a pressure that that companies feel like they need to be able to check the box that they've eliminated their scope to emissions through offsets or a hundred percent renewable energy purchases and 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 we need to move away from that and and you know and and really make it okay to be like look you know I'm you know Google's 61 percent of our hours of the year are carbon free hours and we have a long way to go um, but we should recognize that you know that's a much more direct solution to the problem than the 100% renewable energy match that we've also managed to achieve for the past four years. So I think, um, you know, getting people focused on solving the real problem, I think utilities are certainly, um, you know, very supportive of this approach, making it more acceptable to not be at the 100% place and be somewhere on that journey. And that's, that's okay. Uh, and you can do projects that make sense for your business in the locations where you have um, operations versus going and doing a virtual PPA in a far away RTO. Um, and then lastly, you know, really getting people focused on getting the grids to, to, to carbon-free as fast as possible. Every company that is doing renewable energy purchasing should be in DC right now, banging the drum for a clean energy standard, you know, for a robust clean energy standard. And same with Brussels and same with other markets around the world. We all have a stake in getting the grids to carbon free as fast as possible. And once you start uh, thinking about your business in terms of 24 seven, you're like, okay, there's no way we're gonna do this without getting the grid clean, without getting the grid cleaner. Hey, guess what? We can probably get the grid, you know, to pretty close to 80, 90% in a lot of places by 2030, 2035. Let's focus on that. You know, so I think there's a whole 
um, you know, realm of corporate engagement around, you know, getting utilities to set more aggressive targets and getting policymakers to set more aggressive goals that that emanates from this um, kind of thinking that, you know, we would really like to see. So I think I think those are some ways that you can get, uh, you know, others involved in it. And there's there's certainly plenty of of work and opportunity to go around. Michael, thank you so much for doing this. Great. Thanks for having me, Chael. Michael Terrell is the Director of Energy at Google. The Interchange is produced by PostScript Audio. Daniel Waldorf is our senior producer. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. I really liked this conversation with Michael, but then again, I love to wonk out. So tell us what you think. Tweet at us at, at Interchange Show or send us an email to contact at postscriptaudio.com. We really do appreciate feedback and ideas for future episodes, or you can tell us that we're being too wonky and not nearly wonky enough. If you do like it, give us a rating, share it with a friend. It helps other people learn about the show. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. Interchange.